If you would, just reach out your hands like you're receiving a gift. Man, it's Christmas morning. You're, uh, you know, 14 years old again, and you come downstairs, and you're excited, and your parent who loves you dearly says, hey, here you go. Lord, I ask in your name that our hearts will be open, that you would change out the coercion, this harshness that we often feel and replace it with just passion for good and for you. We receive your words. It's the best gift. If you would just ask, say, Lord, let my heart be teachable. Just pray it. Lord, let my heart be teachable. Let your goodness be more than an idea. Let me actually believe it. Pray for the people around you. Ask that God would move in their lives too. Lord, that we would just be conduits of your grace, that we would be engines of hope. In your wonderful name, I ask that you would even let me do nothing more than lift you high, make you famous and known. Jesus, we receive you in your name. Amen. You guys are great. You can have a seat. Josh, thank you for leading worship. You do a great job. I love that, man. I appreciate you. And your whole team, and the, and the whole team. Uh, it is good to be with you all this morning. Early service, first service. This is the beginning of all of the services and busyness of the day. And so you get me fresh. The coffee is kicking in. That's good. Uh, so as the morning goes, I literally was just drinking coffee in the front row. So as this sermon goes, I'm going to speak faster and faster. Awesome. Uh, as the caffeine kicks in. No, it is great to be with you all early service. I love you guys so much. And it's such a joy to be here with you all in the house of the Lord. I actually did wake up this morning and I was just thinking, man, I get to go to church with some of the coolest people. And uh, that's right, coolest people. We may be nerds in some ways, but I love it so much. And so uh, I love that I get to be here with you guys this morning. We are going to be doing the Lord's Prayer today, and I'm excited to get into it. Uh, we have been in a larger series, and the whole series has been, we've walked through the whole Bible. Over the course of this last year, we're walking through all of the Bible, each of the major narratives in Scripture. So many of the stories that we've covered were stories that if you grew up in the church, if you didn't, that's okay too. But if you grew up in the church, there's stories that you heard, you know, creation, fall, you know, story of King David. We've walked through all of these over the course of the last year. And we are now moving in towards the, the latter stage of this as we move now all the way into Christmas. And so the section we're in now is kingdom come. And uh, this is literally, uh, maybe the way to say it in creative language would be, this is heaven's invasion into fallen earth. 
This is heaven's invasion. Uh, the world belonged to God, you know, and the evil one came and kind of took it over and, and uh, created all of these systems, principalities and powers as they're called, right, in the scripture. And it creates all this evil and brokenness. And then eventually God's like, you know what? We're done. We're going to reinvade this place and take back what belongs to me. That's what God would say, right? That's what we're going to do. And uh, I love that heart. I love that heart. And so the invasion, and, and this primary invasion begins uh, with what we would call um, Emmanuel. Jesus comes, right? Jesus comes. Uh, but what we want to do as we prepare for that story in a little while, we want to talk about the kingdom's invasion. What did Jesus actually teach? What are the ways in which the invasion happens? Now, in a I thought it was, I was listening to you. See, this is the early service, so a lot of you all have been in the church for a long time, which I think is awesome. And so when we were doing the Lord's Prayer, I heard some King Jamesers out there, man. Some of you were like, oh, that NIV thing, I don't know what to do with it, right? Let's say, we, like, we teach out of the ESV, sometimes we do the NIV, sometimes we do the different versions, and I can hear, I've done this, I've uh, been in this text enough with the different translations, I could hear, I could hear, there were some King Jamesers behind me, there were a little bit of NIVers, oh yeah, it was all mixed, that's cool. So uh, I heard the little fumbles through there. It was just, it was evidence of your passion for this. Like it was your age in which you memorized it maybe. I don't know. But the Lord's Prayer is honestly one of my favorites. And uh, I have been through this and taught through this and studied it um, many times uh, in the classroom and on my own and in preparation for messages. The Lord's Prayer. It really is like a prism. Um, there are so many ways in which you could teach this. It's, I mean, it, it, I, I love that idea. And so much of the Bible is like this. Um, it literally is like a prism and, and, and the light hits the prism and it creates the spectrum. And you can drill down in on some of the unique colors of the spectrum that all represent, they're all from this deep idea and today I'm going to take a unique one. It's going to be a historical and contextual look at the Lord's Prayer, at the Lord's Prayer. Kathy did a great job reading it earlier. Let me begin with this idea. Um, I, I think, I think, I think, I think, when you look through history, and I love history, I'm a history guy, right? Like that's, that's my passion, that's a lot of my education, I'm a history guy. When you look through history, Religious people are really bad at picking heroes. Have you ever noticed that? They just always seem to pick poor representatives of their movement, right? We're bad at picking heroes. Religious people are often really bad at picking heroes. And, uh, and, and, and I would say this. I've been thinking about this a little bit. I actually wrote a blog, a much longer blog with a lot more thoughts that I don't have time to go into this morning. You can go to Luke117.com. I think it's the second post if you're scrolling down if you want to read what I'll share with you in a minute in more detail but it's basically this there are three religious anti-heroes we love to follow three religious anti-heroes that religious people they love to follow these people religious anti-heroes that we love to follow the first one I would say is this so like people that religious people elevate that maybe are not the greatest to follow, but we love to elevate these people. The first one is this, the macabre, right? Macabre. These leaders excel at piously pointing out what is wrong with culture. You know these people? Like they're just, they're excellent. That's bad, that's broken. This political party is bad. Their views on this are bad. Everything's awful. Like they're just awesome. They're awesome at pointing out everything that's bad. 
They are often intelligent, the ones that get elevated the highest. They're often intelligent, they're loud, they're passive observers, and some people even see them as like cultural gurus. These podcasters, authors, comedians, and professors are great at articulating what's broken. They're great at talking about what's broken. I guarantee in this room, some of you all are obsessed with these religious anti-heroes. You love to listen to the podcast over and over again about how terrible everything is, how bad it all is. It's all a complete mess. Everything is awful. The political system, it's, just, it's terrible, right? You, you love the macabre. You love these really dark, brilliant people that point out everything that's bad. They are masters. These people are masters of doom and gloom. They make fear famous. In fact, the reality is making fear famous has made them famous. Making fear famous has made them famous. Now, these religious antiheroes, this group in particular, what they get right, they do get some stuff right. They really do. What they get right, they are often excellent and articulate observers of darkness. They are. I mean, like, in all honesty, I won't name names, though that would have been really fun to do in all of the services today. Uh, but when you listen to these people and you podcast them, when you watch their TV specials and shows, and they talk about everything that's wrong with political system and everything that's wrong in the world and all the darkness in the world and how everything's awful, let's be honest, what they're, sh what they're sharing is often true. It's true. But what they get wrong, right? What they get wrong. They choose not to talk about or have completely lost the ability to wrap words around beautiful things. They've lost the ability to talk about and articulate beautiful things. And they're teaching us that adhering to God is obsession with darkness. What if obsession with God is not obsession with the darkness? What if? They've lost the ability to wrap words around beautiful things. Their eyes are on the darkness and their hearts are turning dark too. All while saying true things. All while saying true things. Right? I mean, in reality, these people, they want to be more like Old Testament, Old Testament prophets and, and not like Jesus. They want to make King David their savior, not Jesus. They want to make Old Testament prophets their people, not Jesus. Right? This is the macabre. Right? And in all honesty, uh, I can kind of fall into this at times. Like this is, this is, if I'm going to fall into the weakness ones, this is the ones that can grab me because I love deep ideas. I love taking things apart. I've been taught very well by the education system to be highly critical. Like I can fit into this. I have to war against only seeing darkness. Uh, the second one, so that's the first one. The second one is what I call the conquistador, right? The conquistador. This person is a conqueror. They rightly see what's wrong, like the macabre, 
and they rightly want to take action. So unlike the macabre who's like a passive observer, just putting things down, talking about what's broken, podcasts, you know, sticking out messages, doing interviews, writing books about everything that's bad and broken and awful in the world, the conquistador, they're going to actually march on something or take something on or, I mean, they're going to run something, they're going to do something. These people rightly see what's wrong and rightly want to take action. The problem is they seem to always justify setting aside compassion and charity. They constantly voice the truth that there are times to flip tables, right? But they take that one very specific story in a very specific context. And actually, did you know that the flipping of tables was an act of charity? But they take that one little story out of context, right, in Matthew 21, 12 through 13, and they are unaware that Jesus did other things too. <laughs> like, hey, did you know that there are other things that Jesus did? To them, every situation requires, to them, every situation, to them, every situation requires setting aside compassion and charity for what they always say is the greater good. There's always a greater good that requires setting aside the actual heart of Jesus. I mean, that's the really harsh way to say it. I didn't have that in my notes. Setting aside charity for a greater good. That's the way they would say it. What they get right, because they do get some stuff right. They really do. What they get right. They are often right about what is wrong, just like the macabre. They're right about what is wrong. They are also correct that passive observance isn't what Christians should do. They're action people. That's a right thing. They do rightly want to not merely be observers. They want to take action. But what do they get wrong? What do these people get wrong? We look through history, man alive, especially when you look through Jewish history, they loved their conquistadors, though they wouldn't have ever called them that. They were always ready. What they get wrong, they seem to miss that deconstruction. Oh man, help me to, Lord, even now go before my words. They seem to miss that deconstruction isn't the end game. And a heart given to deconstruction, a heart given to this, is a heart that misses the core of Christ's heart. We're not going to, okay, maybe we way to say this like this. We're not going to spend forever ripping things apart. That's not what we do for Forever. We're not going to spend forever attacking and tearing things down. Like, that's not what we do for forever. Right? It's not that that never fits, but that's definitely not what should be the core of who we are. Bear with me. There's one more that I want to pick on really fast, too. And, and, and by the way, I just... This is the pot calling the kettle black. This is, the, I mean, whatever metaphor you want to use. I struggle with all of these things too. There are times I definitely can fit in this, right? So, uh, it, it, yes, I'm guilty. I can be guilty of these too. And so can you, I guarantee at times. I'm guilty of this. I'm sure you are too at times. The next one, I do not struggle with this one very much, but I'm certain some of you do. I call this one the conciliatory, right? This person believes what is most loving is most permissive. They rightly want to be peacemakers and desperately hate making people feel bad. This person loves parables like the woman at the well, 
you know, or the woman caught in adultery, right? They love these stories like this, but they always seem to miss the parts in all of the stories of go and sin no more. They always skip that part. It's like Jesus is loving and accepting, and then they just stop the story. They don't finish it. What they get right. These people get some stuff right too. By the way, the, the conquistadors and the macabres, they hate the conceal And the conciliatories hate. The, I mean, they're even warring against each other. What they get right. They love reconciliation and want people to feel accepted. That's a really good thing. What they get wrong. In an attempt to be inclusive, they may be excluding people from the actual way to heaven. In an attempt to be inclusive, they may be excluding people from the actual way to heaven. Jesus says that he is the exclusive only way to God, John 14, 6. Now, maybe another way to say it would be like this. You cannot share the love of Jesus without sharing what Jesus came to share with the people he loves. I can't share the love of Jesus if I'm not sharing what Jesus was sharing with people. Do you, do you see that disconnect? So this begs a really good question, right? Like, what kind of Christians should we follow, elevate, and work to become? Because it's really easy for us to make religious anti-heroes out of one of those three. The passive, always pointing out what's wrong, obsessed with the darkness, always, everything, society's off, the world's off, I don't like the way they do this, people are bad with, I mean, just, they're just like spewers of, of fear. I mean, like, that's so easy to go, that's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. They are right about what they say, right? Or the conquistador, it's like, we got to take action. We need to take something down, rip something apart, we got to... Right? Or, or, or you've got like the, the, the like peace, I don't know, peace, peace, peacemaker, everything. We don't want to make anybody feel bad. Love is open permission. What's most loving is most permissive. You know, so what do we elevate? What do we elevate? Let's go to the Lord's Prayer. I think this is incredibly important. Let's go to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I'm going to do it out of the ESV, though I heard some KJV and some NIV and some whatever else. I didn't hear anybody doing the message, though. That would have been. Our Father in heaven, I'll do the ESV here this morning for this message. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. Maybe is a better way to translate, but I like that. I like this. So let me take this apart in a couple of different ways. I want to begin with the history, just briefly. Then let's go to context, literary context. And then let's go to even just very briefly, I'm very, very quickly going to touch on these. And then we're going to go to the actual text itself and take it apart a piece at a time. So the question is, what kind of person are we supposed to be focusing on and working to be like? That's an interesting question. And the answer is super interesting because the answer is like, this is what you're asking God for. 
you know what somebody is after when you listen to what they are asking for, what they're obsessed with. That's how you can tell. So a little, a little, a little history here real quick. A rabbi, so like Jewish history, a, little, a rabbi teaching their disciples prayer wasn't uncommon. That was really common thing to do. So um, all of the different rabbis and all the different followers of those rabbis, and they gather around the rabbi and they would ask the rabbi, how do we pray? And then the rabbi would teach their followers how to do that. That's actually really common for that question to be asked at that time in history. The rabbi often would give these like memorable prayers. They were used as poetic tools to help their followers remember truths about God, others, and the world around them. So this is like a, think of it like not only a prayer, but an axiom for life. These are tools to help us remember what we're supposed to be aiming our hearts at. It's a tool to help us remember what we're supposed to be aiming our hearts at. And this is made really evident for those that want to spend more time, and I'm not going to take the time this morning, uh, but for, my, for nerdy people that would be like me, if I was sitting out there, I'd be like, where are you getting this? Okay, so uh, this is made evident in Jewish texts like the Talmud and the Mishnah. If you spend time in those, it's really interesting. I'd encourage you to if you like nerdy stuff. Uh, but this is not uncommon. What Jesus was asked and what Jesus responded with was very common at that time in history between Jewish people and their followers. All right, so then the literary context. Jesus purposely took attributes of existing Jewish prayers. So like when Jesus responds, he is responding to the question on how to pray to people that are listening that this was not in a vacuum. They would have heard statements similar to this, even similar to some prayers. Jesus purposely took attributes of existing Jewish prayers, but reworded them in a much less formal and much more familial way. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he is teaching his disciples what the kingdom of God looks like and how they are supposed to live it. And it begins with intimacy. So let's go to the text. And all of the competing ideas on how should we live? What are we supposed to be like? What is the kingdom of God like? How are we supposed to respond? And Jesus begins bringing his kingdom invasion into this world. And one of the primary questions they ask is, Lord, how should we pray? Which was common for followers of a rabbi to ask. And then he offers them not only a framework, it is a framework, but it's not only a framework. It is also a rubric for how to aim your heart. Our Father, Jesus begins with the phrase, our Father. Jesus begins by making our engagement with God personal. It isn't a business transaction, a deal, or a political truce. It's a child to a parent. The second phrase that I think is important to note is, your kingdom come, your will be done. We are to bring the attributes of God the attributes of our true family into this world. This is why we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't, we cannot merely be haters of evil. We must be fans and action people of what is good. We're not only haters of evil. We are also people that are actively working to bring the kingdom of God into this world. Listen, 
In my house, I'm going to invite Josh up here, and I'll start closing some of this out as we finish this off. But in my home, uh, if I go up and my kid's bedroom is really dirty, and I'm like, hey, my kids are amazing. The room is always clean, so I won't pick on one. That was sarcastic. And I walk in there, I'm like, hey, your room is dirty. And imagine one of my kids, you know, my daughter or whatever, standing there and being like, I'm with you, Dad. I hate dirty rooms. In fact, I can tell you all the ways in which it's dirty, Dad. I left my bowl from last week, a party and cereal, on the dresser. I'm like, yes, you did, dear. And Dad, let me tell you the other ways in which my room is a mess. See that over there? Those are my soccer cleats or whatever, right? And, and, and I brought them upstairs instead of leaving them in the garage. So now the whole room smells like stinky feet. That wasn't right. You're right, dear. That's correct. You, you are accurate in everything that you're saying. So clean your room. Don't merely hate that it's dirty. Clean your room. So this is what we are to aim at, right? Give us today our daily bread. There's one way. The first little, Jesus is so brilliant. He's so brilliant. Did you know he's a smart guy? And the more I study him, the more I'm like, I learned that from the kids. He's so smart. What does he do? He shows them how to aim their heart by telling them what to pray for. Now, pay attention to this. When we read this, we think, give me today my daily bread. We always think of it personal. The teaching of Jesus is, we are asking to participate in sharing God's generosity. Think familial. It begins with this familial idea. The father, right? Think familial. Like a mom offering her children a great meal. So the idea in this text is not just, oh God, look at all this brokenness. Give me what I need. No, no, no. He says, you aim your heart at Lord, help us to participate in provision. So I don't actually mean any specific you, by the way, as I'm pointing my finger. So I'm not pointing at you. I'm not pointing at you. So I don't need an email that says, why did you call me out in church? I'm not pointing at you. This is just for illustration purpose. It's literally, you know, a you using what God has blessed you with to bless you. And it's a you using your gifts to bless a you. And it's you taking what God has given you and sharing it with you. And it's, it's an us all under the framework of family. Not help me beat out everyone. And then the next phrase, and forgive us, there's so much more I could share on this, man alive. This is the point in a preacher where it's like, I really want to say that, I want to say this, I want to say this, but time is a problem. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. There are a few things. Notice the plural on that. I'll point that out again, even though I'm not going to spend my time on that. But notice the plural. It's us. Forgive us. We are to participate in this together. It's not, God, forgive me. I don't know what's happening over there, but forgive me. It's literally like, no, we are to participate in reconciliation together. That is our heart's desire. Reconciliation is a key component of Christianity. Forgiveness 
isn't so much this is so important. I've done whole sermons on this. I've written blogs on it, newspaper article. I've done all kinds of stuff with this. But very briefly, forgiveness isn't so much a feeling, but a choice to act and wise charity towards those who need it, including our enemies. Matthew 5, 44, Romans 5, 8. So what that means is this. Love and forgiveness are not open permission. Love and forgiveness is not open permission, but wise consideration of what may help people find Jesus best. That's what it is. You're trying to figure out ways to help people find Jesus best. You're not letting their broken will control the world. You're trying to help people find ways to help them find Jesus best. So as a parent, what's most loving is not to give them marshmallows for every meal. What's most loving is to help them grow in wisdom and stature in favor of God and man, which is going to mean including saying no, but I'm doing it all with a heart that wants their best. I want their best for them. And then the phrase, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We think about this in the singular way too often. Don't lead me into temptation, Lord. How I dress, how I act, how I spend my money, don't lead me into temptation, but I'm not gonna worry about how it affects the other people. Familial umbrella, plural language, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We think about this in the singular, lead me. It's a prayer for us, it's plural. Notice it calls to have humans delivered from the evil one. The language implies, I know there's a lot of information today, the language implies that we are family and some of us have been abducted by principalities and powers that will destroy us. Ephesians 6.12, our brothers brainwashed by Satan are not our enemies. We want them rescued. Okay. Um... I had in high school, I had a friend of mine and um, he made some really bad decisions right after he graduated and he ended up in prison for 30 years and he's coming near the end of it. And a whole chain of just bad decision, bad decision, justify bad, I mean, just, it just builds up and ended up in jail for 30 years. And uh, I've shared some of this with you all before. We went down and visited him. He's become a passionate follower of Jesus. That was the first time you would take a cultural bad guy. But that was the first time I looked at someone you all would say is a bad guy. And my heart was not, tear him apart, punish him, punish him, punish him. The first time my heart was like, You need to be stopped. But my heart is so for you. And our accountability group has been down to visit him numerous times in prison. I've been down there here a few years ago. And we're going to go down. We're going to try to do a big party for his release.
And one of my best friends in the world is somebody most of society would hate. Or at least deem a bad guy. Now when parents share with me about like a child that's ran from the Lord, and this is our early service, our early service, just by demographics, we have older people in here. Those of you that have a child that's abandoned their faith or made decisions that don't love God or ran away, I mean, those that have turned away from the Lord, you're not wanting them to burn forever in hell and revenge. You're not the conquistador against them. You want them rescued. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. We are to be agents, active agents of bringing his kingdom and hope into the world, doing everything that we can to help save our brothers and sisters. The whole framework of the Lord's Prayer, listen to this again. Our Father, hallowed be your name. He's telling all of those people to pray to a Father. We're all family. Your rebellious kid is my brother. And I want him rescued. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the way, your kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And what does that look like? What are we praying for as we're trying to live that out? Give us, 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 this day, our daily bread. Lord, help me to be a receiver of your goodness and a sharer of it with others. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors as you are forgiving us, your kids. Help us to be participants in reconciliation. And lead us not to temptation. I love, I think it's a KJV. I've done this in so many different times. And deliver us from the evil one. I like the way that's worded. Deliver us from the evil one. Not just deliver me from the evil one, deliver us. Deliver us from the evil one. Oh, my friends, the macabre, the pious, arrogant, so accurate at seeing everything that's broken. I mean, they just pour out darkness. They're obsessed with darkness. And we all give into it because what they're saying is true. The problem is their eyes are on hell. And we need to remind them that their hearts should be in heaven. And then the conquistador, man, these are the, man, they're the, we're going to tear down the walls. We're going to rip things apart. We're going to take people out. We're going to, I mean, like, we, we just, the people that obsess with that, that literally lean fully into that, they do so, so much. They're right we're supposed to take action. They're right that things are broken. They're right that there are at times even moments for, like, strong interaction. But if that's all they put their hearts to, they have trained their heart to love deconstruction. And that is not the end game of Christianity. And then you have the conciliatory. Oh my goodness, I'm eight minutes over. I got to stop preaching. I'm so sorry, everyone. And I'm not supposed to say it out loud when I notice that I'm over. <laughs> and then you have the conciliatory. There's open permission. 
It's all good. Be what you want. You be you. And in their passion to be inclusive, they're excluding people from the actual road to heaven. You know what we need? We need to actually make Jesus our hero again. Let's, the Old Testament prophets, they're awesome. They're not your savior. Joshua is awesome. March on Jericho, Terry, that's cool. We get to read so much. He's not your savior. King David is amazing. I love King David. Listen, I love you. I don't want my young men to be like King David in some very specific ways. I want them to love Jesus and model Jesus. And the conciliatory that wants to make everything okay, it's all good. Jesus had, he was very clear, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. My friends, the Lord's Prayer shows the heart of God and teaches us what we should actually be putting our minds and hearts on. Memorize it. Pray it slowly. Journal through it. Think about it in your life. Let that beautiful ancient axiom compass us today. If you would, grab the next steps card. They're in the back of the chair in front of you. And I just want to leave you with a question to think about. What is God saying to you? What is God saying to you? How has this message illuminated the heart of God in your life? Just what's God saying to you? Even now, Holy Spirit, you do what only you can do. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, I love you all. I love you all. It's so good to get to be here with you. And I pray the Spirit speaks to you as you reflect. Thanks for listening to Sunday Sermon on the Made for More podcast. If you are not connected in a church community, we would love to connect with you. Send us a message on social media or fill out a digital Next Steps card at EncounterTrinity.com slash Next Steps.